Hello, everyone. This is Gary Sheffer. I'm a professor at Boston University. I'm here with my outstanding podcast partner, Mike Fernandez, who's the CCO at Enbridge. Hey, Mike, welcome back to another season of The Crux. Yeah, it's great. And we're nearing in on number 100 here. Can you believe that? We we are survivors, Mike. Uh, the, you know, we're we're uh, podcasts come and go, but or, not or oblivious to the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that might be it. So today we have a terrific guest, and a, and a really important topic. Um, Professor Ingrid Anderson uh, is the associate director of the Elie Wiesel Center for Jewish Studies at Boston University which serves as BU's hub for co-curricular and public events related to Jewish history, religion, and culture. It is, of course, named after Elie Wiesel, the 1986 Nobel Laureate for Peace and a member of the BU faculty for many decades, which, you know, I really hadn't realized until I started doing some research for this podcast. Dr. Anderson specializes in modern and contemporary Jewish theology, philosophy, and political thought, and currently teaches courses on images of Jewish masculinity and post-Holocaust ethics. Ingrid holds a master's degree in Jewish studies and a doctoral degree in religious studies from BU, in addition to a bachelor's degree in literature and women's study. Uh, Ingrid has told me she's particularly interested in anti-Zionist rhetoric as an expression of anti-Semitism. We're gonna discuss with Ingrid the rise of anti-Semitism in the US and globally, and specifically what business can and should do about it. Welcome to The Crux, Ingrid. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. So let's let's get right right into it. Um, the American Jewish Committee, uh, a leading uh, Jewish global Jewish advocacy organization, reports that anti-Semitism is rising in America. Attacks on Jews have occurred across the country in recent years. This has included uh, physical attacks, defacement of synagogues, anti-Jewish protests and trivialization of the Holocaust by even by some politicians. Uh, in fact, the 20, a 2021 AJC report found that one in four Jewish Americans say they have been a target of anti-Semitic behavior. It's remarkable, mm -hmm. such as a physical attack or a slur. These incidents happen in public, at schools, and in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And then we had, at the end of last year, former President Trump dining with uh, anti-Semite Kanye West and white nationalist and Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes. That brought more attention to this trend. We saw when the guardrails came off of Twitter on moderation, a rise in anti-Semitic postings. And last month, 
uh, meaning December, the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee released a report identifying domestic terrorism as the most persistent and lethal terrorist threat to the homeland, attributable largely to, quote, white supremacist and anti-government extremist individuals and groups. Ingrid, what is driving this increase in anti-Semitic rhetoric and behavior? That's a great question. I, I'm hesitant to, to say that there is a, a rise per se in, in actual activity. I mean, I don't know if it's that we are paying more attention or people mm-hmm. reporting it more, um, or I rather I should say uh, if there's an actual rise in sentiment or not. Um, I, you know, I think that that American culture, European culture, they they are anti-Semitic by nature. Um, you know, it's a part of the structure of, of Western societies and has been for a long time. So I think that it's intrinsic to the sort of social, political, cultural systems that we live in. But there are, there seem to be um, phenomena that do drive increases. And they're often, you know, we, we often see a rise in anti-Semitism at the same time that we see a rise in anti-immigration sentiment, for example, or concern about financial systems, for example, right? Mm-hmm. These, these are the things that um, tend to um, come along with anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic sentiment. Ingrid, the White House held a roundtable back in December on rising mm-hmm. anti-Semitism. Uh, at it, uh, Ambassador Deborah Livstadt, uh, Biden's special envoy who monitors anti-Semitism around the world, said people have not taken anti-Semitism seriously enough. Um, and I quote, she says, for too long, mm-hmm. Jew hatred has been belittled or discounted because Jews mm-hmm. have erroneously been considered white and privileged. This is a very real threat to Jews, she said, and that alone and that alone would make it worth fighting with all our soul, with all our might. Question for you. How has that happened less than a century after the Holocaust? <laughs> That's a great question. So, I mean, I think there's a there's a number of, of uh, issues to think about when we when we want to understand understand anti-Semitism and the way that it's expressed and so on. So, first of all, the way that we think of race in the United States and the way that we think of race, say in Europe, they're 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 different. Um, and you know, for for quite a long time in Europe, Jews were a racial other. Um, as much, particularly starting in the 19th century on. And while in the U.S., even during periods of, of you know, increased anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic sentiment, Jews were not really seen as a separate race. Now, there were times when there's an exception, you know, there are exceptions there. The mm-hmm. interwar period tends to be, um, you know, historically we think of it as, as a more anti-Semitic period in American history than others. So the idea that that many Jews present as white or are white in the American sense of the term, you know, that's not an uncommon idea. Um, and it can also, in one sense, it's true. You know, there are Jews who are of European descent or present as European, can, whether they want to or not, pass as white. They present as white. Um, but that also means our understanding of Jewishness is limited. You know, about uh, new studies coming out of Stanford University and other places indicate that as much as 15% of the American Jewish community are actually non-white. Hmm. Um, so, you know, 
I think that so much of the way that we think about Jewishness at all is driven by um, stereotypes, lack of knowledge, assumptions about what Jewishness is or isn't, you know. Um, so that's my first, the first thing I would say to respond mm -hmm. to, to your, your yeah, question. That raises, that raises another question for me in the sense that there, there mm -hmm. are other um, ethnic groups, other racial groups that also sometimes aren't easily identifiable as well. And just wonder, mm -hmm. you know, how should people be thinking about what we're talking about today in terms of anti-Semitism, any different from broader conversations around hate crimes? Um, well, I think that's a great question. I think there are some, some differences with regard to how they're expressed, perhaps. Um, but I think, but I think it, um, I, I'll answer that by circling back to the, the first, your first question again, which had to do with why is this mm -hmm. happening again so quickly after the Holocaust? Um, I, I think that, you know, the Holocaust itself was not a blip, you know, it was a culmination yeah. of, of forces in, in the Europe, in Europe and in other parts of the world. Um, you know, there was also uh, increasing anti-Jewish settlement and sentiment, excuse me, in the Middle East because of the rising interest in fascism in the same period. And so in by 1948, when the creation of the Israeli state happens, right, and then the, the, the War of Independence or the Nakba, depending on um, how, what, you, what term you want to use, um, takes place, um, hundreds of thousands of Jews from the Middle East who were, you know, ethnically Arab uh, were forced to leave and ended up in Israel, right? So that itself is is a kind of turning point, you know, the, the, that Israel was for modern Zionists seen as um, a necessity uh, for many of them, um, both religiously or, or politically. And, you know, then uh, right after its creation, we see a, 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 an upsurge of anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic uh, sentiment because of its existence. Mm -hmm. So it, it's yeah. very tricky, you know, um, we want to relate that to the Holocaust, but I think that the Holocaust really is an expression of this larger mm -hmm. issue. Um, and I think that, um, you know, you, you, you asked, is there, are there special things that we should know or are there unique aspects to anti-Semitism? I think, I mean, yes and no. I, I think that what perhaps is unique, at least in, in the American uh, landscape, is that people do tend to, I mean, I agree with, with Deborah Lipstadt on this and with uh, regarding other things as well, um, that people just don't people underestimate it. And I think it's partly because the fantasies that people have about Jews are things that seem mm -hmm. positive, you know, oh, they're rich, they're smart, they are good at business, they, you know, they, and, and why would we worry about those things if the attributes that we right, rightly or wrongly, you know, subscribe to them are positive. And I think that has, that's part of it. I think it's also that Jewish identity is complicated. So it's mm -hmm. not as easy as, mm -hmm. you know, I identify as or whatever, you know, it, it, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a complicated yeah, right. identity. And then you add to that the complications of Israel in the modern world. And, and that 
is kind of a perfect yeah. storm. Well, and, and, and I guess I want to get back to, you know, what can be done about it? Gary cited mm -hmm. uh, a U.S. Senate report earlier uh, that the federal government uh, has not devoted enough resources to fight this kind of extremism. Is that changing under the President Biden administration? I think just the appointment of Deborah Lipstadt indicates that it is changing for sure. First of all, because her post wasn't mm -hmm. was empty, if I if I understand that correctly. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, but then that he chose her is also really smart. Um, Deborah Lipstadt was actually a guest um, lecturer at at BU, you know, as a guest of the center um, some years ago. And you know, the work that she's done on the history of anti-Semitism, its expression. Um, you know, working on on prevention. I mean, those are things that Lipstadt is really an expert in. So that alone indicates to me that that there's been um, movement forward in, regarding at the federal level, you know, with this new administration. Ingrid, one of the disturbing things we've seen recently is that young people under the age of 30 increasingly hold prejudices against Jews. I think that's the right way to say it according to a survey by the Anti-Defamation League's Center for Anti-Semitism Research. Mm -hmm. The results that were particularly disturbing, um, it was released this month, the survey, by the way, um, mm -hmm. shows that increasing numbers of young people agree with the tropes that Jews are clannish, conspiratorial, and holders of excessive power. Specifically, mm -hmm. the survey results said that nearly 20% of Americans age 18 to 30 believe these things to be true higher than in the past. And in fact, um, now agree, I mean, in uh, the same numbers as older Americans about these things. But mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, Ingrid, what's going on? Any insight on what's influencing young people? Is it social media? Um, so uh, that's part of it, yes. I, and I think I, I looked at that same study again this morning about the, the increase in, in anti-Semitic sentiment among young people and saw that the, um, the, the period, the year in which the statistics were similar or even a little higher than what we have right now is 1964, right. which I think yeah, is right. quite interesting given what a tumultuous year politically and culturally that was in the United States. You know, the Kennedy assassination and um, how there were lots of things going on that year that kind of started to show the divisions in American society that were becoming in, in many ways untenable. So I, I find that interesting just yes. to kind of throw that in there. I think that in, that um, social media helps to spread things more quickly. I think that it, it helps to, it, it's very easy to reduce complex issues to sound bites. And I think that that, ha, you know, plays mm -hmm. a part. Um, I also think that that a really significant factor are, you know, people's political views uh, about Israel and Israel's mm -hmm. domestic and foreign policies. Um, and a lot of what people think they know about Israel is, again, you know, that people tend to be pretty ill-informed in part mm -hmm. because um, it's easy to be ill-informed in today's society. <laughs> right. You know, again, you know, with, with social media and things like that. So I think that for young people in particular, in my experience, um, they tend to assume a lot of things about Jews based on what assumptions they have about Israel. And, and often both sets of assumptions are incorrect, um, but they're much more common now than, say, 10 years ago. Right. 
That's really interesting. And, mm-hmm. you know, politics influences everything these days, right? You know, and, you know, populism that has emerged in, you know, greater force in the U.S. and Europe is also in Israel as well, too. Yes, right? and, absolutely. And, and and I think the that has something to do with it as well, to your point, to support your point mm-hmm. um, uh, on why things might be... Um, going in the wrong direction uh, in the United States among young people. I wanted to bring it back now to Boston University, where I am today. You're in London today, so thank you for for joining us. Um, And I want to talk about the Wazell Center and and, um, its focus. Tell us about the center and the, the work that you do there. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. So we actually we actually do quite a lot of things at the center. Um, it's an it's an institute really, which means that we're a collection of of affiliated faculty, and so our faculty are specialists in disciplines all across the university, which makes us very lucky. And we have a new director for the next few years, uh, Professor Nancy Harowitz. She so so. Part of what we did at the beginning of her tenure there in that in that position was to sit down together and say, okay, you know what what's on the agenda for us, you know, right. over the next several years. And um, we wanted to continue the center's um, outreach to other other disciplines across the university. For example, creating relationships and sponsoring events with groups like African American Studies and the you know the Parties Center and you know, Islamic studies. So that these were some of the things that we had been doing beforehand that we wanted to continue. We also did feel very much that we needed to um, kind of uh, revisit our curriculum on anti-Semitism and, mm-hmm. and refresh that and uh, really think carefully about what we thought the need, what we thought the needs of Jewish students across the university would be um, in that regard. So that's one thing that was that was really important to us as well as kind of returning to Wassell's own legacy a bit and, and highlighting um, some of that more than we had perhaps done directly in the past. So those are two things that we're, we're focusing on quite a bit right now. And, and w- w- before we came, uh, we've started recording, Ingrid, you were saying you had met um, Ellie Wassell mm-hmm. in your time at mm-hmm. BU. Can you just tell us, mm-hmm. I mean, is it one of the most extraordinary Americans Mm. ever anything that you remember particularly about him sure i mean i he was my teacher for five years i i studied very closely with him i think the thing that i remember the most is his desire to to use his understanding of of judaism to to connect with and engage with the world right i mean he he really felt that by sharing his love of Judaism and Jewishness, that this would itself be um, a tool 
for confronting things like anti-Semitism, even things like like racism. I mean, he was very focused on trying to trying to make the the most out of out of his horrible experience. And I think that um, you know, as a teacher, the thing one of the other things that he really taught me was that you know the the traumas that we experience they they do inform us they shape us but they don't have to run our lives you know we can actually learn to use them in positive ways to make the world better to make ourselves better and so i think you know that those are probably some of the most important lessons that i learned from mm -hmm. from professor wassell wow that's remarkable it, it, uh, one of the things that uh, i wanted to ask you about is the student population here 25 percent uh, of the student population at BU is Jewish. Are we seeing anything like we're, we're seeing elsewhere in the U.S. as far as the rise of anti-Semitism on campus here? Have you? Have... So I, I, my understanding, you know, what I'm hearing from students and, and what I'm seeing myself is that it, we're, we don't have as much, uh, it, probably just in terms of numbers of, of incidents that are occurring in other universities where there are fewer Jews, but that doesn't mean we're not having our own issues. Right. Um, and I think that students in particular, again, I think a lot of it has to do with, with the issue of Israel. And mm -hmm. I think that for one thing, it, it, it kind of, it's affecting both inter-Jewish relationships and Jewish relationships with non-Jews. Um, and what I mean by that is many Jews are divided on what they think about Israel, how they wanna talk about Israel, if they wanna talk about Israel, and so students who are interested in trying to have meaningful conversations about Israel, whether it's simply asking questions and wanting to learn more um, or whatever, that they're feeling there's an increasing, there's increasingly less Jewish space where that can happen in a way that feels comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think that as, as young Jewish students who politically, I think that, that many young progressive Jews feel a great deal of pressure to be anti-Israel. Um, I am progressive myself, yeah. so I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus here, but I'm just, it, it's true, you know? And I, so I think given that there are, that the, that the Jewish population at BU tends to be pretty progressive, I think that there are lots of young Jews feeling a great deal of pressure around that. And so when they want to have nuanced and meaningful conversations about Israel, if they want to learn more about anti-Semitism, or if they want to learn more about Zionism, the climate is a bit different now around that than it used to be. And so I think, I think that what we're trying to do to counteract that is to, to provide those classes, you know, to provide class. We're also thinking of, uh, I, I teach a writing seminar on Zionism, for example. Um, you know, we're, we're offering the new course on anti-Semitism. So we're, we're trying to sort of respond to yeah. holes where we think we're seeing them. Um, and I, and then I well, think, Go ahead. I'm That's sorry. That's an important observation, Ingrid, given what we were just talking about, about young people. Yes. Right. Yes. I think that's really in supportive of that idea. And, and uh, well, and, and I think that I think the sadder part about this is that for many people, when they when they sit, when they say things about Israel that they think are progressive, you know, yeah. they're they mean well, most of them, you know, they're, they're thinking about displaced Palestinians and the Palestinian nationalist movement itself a very viable and and meaningful movement mm -hmm. uh but they often don't yeah. know much about them either so it there it just tends to be a lot of you know 
nobody wants to hurt anybody's feelings yeah. or be a jerk, but lots of uninformed discourse going on. And Jews yeah. feel caught in the middle. Young Jews feel really freaked out. And it's difficult to get non-Jews, particularly if they're caught up in this kind of Israel yeah. is the devil thing. It's really hard to get them to understand just how afraid most Jews around yeah. the world still are. Yeah. I, I well, don't think they get it. From you know? a, uh, mm-hmm. an American history perspective, the the, the challenge mm-hmm. that different peoples have had at different times, sort of uh, carrying the burden of the politics from whence they came. You know, you think about the internment camps, yeah. you know, on the West Coast uh, during World War Two, And it's like none of these people had anything to do with what might be viewed as, you know, questionable governing or, or, or questionable choices by a government. Um, and, and I just wonder to what extent right. there have been any analysis or studies in terms of, of, of this as being thought of as, as a burden for people, uh, you know, of, of, of Jewish ancestry. Uh, just kind of curious about that. And maybe this is taking us down a track we don't want to go oh, down, sure. but... Uh, I, I, but I'm fascinated well, by that. Well, no, not not necessarily. I, I, I know. I think it's I think it's an interesting question. I mean, again, you know, there are so many different points of view about Israel among American Jews in particular, um, which is not a surprise for anyone who either is an American Jew or knows anything about American Jews. It's not a surprise, um, and for some of them, it's a burden. Yeah. It's like, oh, great. Like, I get that there should be an Israel and, you know, I don't really care personally. However, this is making mm-hmm. us look X, Y, and Z. And now we have to deal with it. Th- thanks a lot, Israel. You know, there is some of that. with a broad brush. Because yeah. Jews, particularly, right, but right. Jews, particularly in the U.S., they have really treasured their ability to be successful in a certain way in America. And they don't want that to get screwed up. And I, and I think there, we can see that all through Jewish history in the U.S., that, it, you know, every time there would be new waves of immigration, American Jews would get really nervous and go, OK, as soon as they get there, we have to teach them how to dress and talk. And we have to make sure that, they, you know, a real kind of let's tell them how it's done here so that we continue, can continue to live in a place that's yeah. better than Europe or North Africa or, yeah. you know, the Arab world. Um, and so I think I think that Israel is is for many Jews exactly what you're describing. I think that that you know Israel is also um, connected to a lot of aspects of Europe's own history that it doesn't like to think about. You know, so that that's yeah. another thing. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, well, it's, it's complicated. It, it brings me even personally to. Uh, tensions within one's own family in terms of I was I had been involved uh, through the company I worked for in terms of helping the Obama administration reestablish more normalized relations with Cuba that ultimately led for a short time the reopening of the embassy. and, 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 yes, and, and yeah, and, and inside, even inside my family, there were people like, why are you doing this? You know, mm-hmm. the Castros are evil and, and, and yeah. so on. And, and it's like, OK, that was many decades right. ago. And, you know, we, we've normalized relations even right. with a lot of countries that we've been to war with since then. Um, mm-hmm. So 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 it's a. Uh, 
so anyway, that's that that's in part the reason for 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 my, for my question. That's a good point, Mike. Well, I, and I think when we're when we're in periods where there is a lot less lot less nuanced public discourse, we find ourselves in 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 situations that are more politically and culturally volatile. In my experience, some not too long ago, I I, I read in Fortune magazine you you'd spoken with them that you were preparing a Boston uh, University uh, uh, effort on the history and dangers of uh, anti-Semitism. You, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, so Boston University does currently offer a course on on anti-Semitism that is um, a course on anti-Semitism and anti or Islamophobia rather, uh, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia together. And that's been offered by um, Professor Adam Seligman for some years. Um, we felt it, it might be really useful and helpful to create a course that focuses on um, anti-Semitism since the Holocaust. Um, and I think that, mm -hmm. you know, that's yeah. kind of a different animal in a way. Um, in some ways, it's, it's so much more of the same. But I, I think, you know, it is important for us to to really explore and help our students to understand why do we continue to see anti-Semitism? How does it express it, express itself? You know, what can be done? And so that's really the goal of the course. And, and we want to educate both Jews and non-Jews about what anti-Semitism looks like post-1945. And a lot of that conversation will include, you know, mm -hmm. Israel, just just because, at, you know, out of sheer, sheer yeah. necessity. Yeah. Absolutely. Fascinating. Um, you know, one of the things that is interesting uh, to me and, I, and, and Gary, we've had a lot of conversations around, you know, what uh, businesses should do in terms of taking social stances and how they should think mm -hmm. about it. Um, I, I, I also saw this article in, in Fortune by Ellen McGirt. Uh, in it, she writes that business mm -hmm. needs to get in this fight. Uh, and she quotes uh, mm -hmm. uh, Andrea Lucas, uh, commissioner for Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, saying too often instances of anti-Semitism in the workplace go uh, ignored uh, and unreported or mm -hmm. unaddressed. Uh, what should businesses be doing now to respond to kind of this rising tide of hate? Well, I think first and foremost, I think that businesses really need to think carefully before they make public statements or even plan to do something like boycott Israel. Um, and it, I don't mean that to say, you know, it's not, it's not their business, they don't need to be. It's just something that if you want to do that, make sure you do it mindfully and you think about how that's going to affect your, mm -hmm. your customer base. Mm -hmm your employees? Um, and, and is it something that you know enough about to, to do something like boycott Israel? And if you're going to do that, then be really educated and make a public statement about why. What if it's about events in the U.S. that maybe are acts of anti-Semitism that don't engender anything around Israel? Yeah. The other thing would be to, to I mean, Frankly, it's harder to find coverage of anti-Semitic events. You know, um, you don't see them in the Times as much, for right. example. Not that I'm trying to throw the Times under the bus, but just as an example. Whereas you do find things, you know, a lot more open discussions, particularly since um, the murder of George Floyd, you find more 
um, mainstream coverage on acts of racism against, you know, uh, non-whites, um, non-Jewish non-whites. Um, so that would be one thing, would be for, for companies to speak out, um, you know, to make the kinds of statements they might make in support mm-hmm. of other Americans and Americans of color to, to bother, make that effort, you know, make the effort to stay involved. And, and, and um, if they do that kind of thing, they will be rewarded with customer loyalty and response um, because Jews and friends of Jews, you know, really do pay attention to those kinds of public declarations. But I, I mentioned Israel first because I think that this is one of the places where the slippery slope begins. <laughs> um, that, that, that companies, again, well-meaning, they think that it's going to have some massive effect. You know, it, it's better for them to, to um, think about that more carefully and realize that those kinds of public declarations give people ideas about what Jews are as a people. And so if you're going to do it, do it smart and, and do it with, um, with knowledge and, and mm-hmm. explain yourself. I, that, that, that's really helpful. You know, a lot of listeners to this podcast are in the communications seat, mm-hmm. people right. like Mike, mm-hmm. right? And, and often this falls, Ingrid, to them yes. to identify uh, inc- incidents where they think rise to the level of the need for a response, either internally or externally. Right. And so that that being informed about not only the incident, but the background, the history mm-hmm. is extremely, extremely important. It is extremely important. And I think the other thing that I would say is that there are many people who don't know anything about Jews, generally speaking, let alone anti-Semitism. So they don't really know what Jews believe, you know, what their holidays are really. Um, and they don't really know what kinds of statements are anti-Semitic. So you're starting, but they perpetuate these ideas because they don't know what they're saying. So part of it is also making an effort in ways that make sense for your organization to educate people a little bit about Jews and Jewish practice. And please, God, don't go to the one Jew on your staff and make them hold some seminar on on Hanukkah. I mean, you know, the kind of sensitivity that you would want to express for other minorities who have experienced violence and live with some degree of fear is the same kind of uh, kindness and respectfulness you want to extend to your Jewish employees. Yeah, well said. You know, well, the good news is, Ingrid, that there are new training programs that mm-hmm. are emerging and guides that are available to business leaders, including from the American Jewish Committee, mm-hmm. uh, the Cornerstone on Demand Foundation, and others to help companies expand and improve their DEI programs mm-hmm. to include anti-Semitism. And increasingly, uh, from what I've read, that is happening. So they're recognizing exactly, it sounds like what you say Mm -hmm. is that there needs to be an an education process as well as a traditional um, sort of yes-no decision-making on whether to become active on this issue. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think... I think that, you know, particularly in a, in a society like America's where, you know, the kinds of public decisions that, that corporations and other businesses make really do have an effect. 
you know, people people talk with their money, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Well, you know, earlier we we spoke and and, and there was a, a sensibility that the media maybe hasn't even touched this question or this issue as much as they should have, but. Back in November, uh, there was quite a stir when uh, the documentary Hebrews to Negroes Wake Up Black America uh, became available on Mm -hmm. Amazon Prime. The documentary and the book of the same Mm -hmm. title were available on both Amazon Prime and then, of course, through Amazon Books. Uh, Both were are heavily anti-Semitic, including claims about Jews controlling mm-hmm. media, false assertions that millions of Jews did not die mm-hmm. during the Holocaust. And and at the time, and I think what probably elevated uh, or, 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 or brought it to, to even more attention was uh, NBA basketball star mm-hmm. Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets even posted a positive comment mm-hmm. about the documentary and, and with a Link through through his Twitter account uh, to actually go and look at uh, uh, sort of a, a a treatment from that uh, documentary uh, that ultimately led to his suspension. By the way, by the Brooklyn Nets, uh, mm. but and at the time, lots of organizations like the Anti Defamation League called on Amazon to stop selling, you know, both the book and the documentary, uh, which ultimately they they opted not to do. And it should be noted uh, Mm. that at one point, uh, the book was among the best selling on Amazon, uh, which also tells you, you know, maybe how society is denigrated or, or diminished itself. But Ingrid, what should Amazon have done in your mind and what should amazon and other media companies be doing to fight misinformation about the jewish community and its history well i mean i think the first thing they need to do is to to care you know that's the first thing and then the second thing i think is to educate themselves i I, you know it's it's just or if you don't want to do it hire someone who you can who, who will tap you on the shoulder and go, you can't do that. (laughs) Because X, Y, Z, right? I mean, you need someone who who can you can trust, Mm -hmm. right? To to tell you, you know, hey, man, let me tell you about this, 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 you know, Hebrew versus, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, right? That, that would be another option. Um, With regard to what Amazon could have done. I mean, I think it, it would have been potentially really interesting if they had included on the posting for the um for the the book or the or the film a link that they could go to that featured a discussion about the content right um scholars talking about you know why all the stink about this book and who exactly are the black hebrews and why are they saying these things about jews and you know that would have been then they could have continued to sell it right Mm -hmm. i think in a better conscience um that mm-hmm. could have been really smart because I get why they would want to make it available. I mean, I, you know, I, I, and it's possible that people were wanting to read it, not because they felt it was true, mm-hmm. but because they felt it wasn't right. I mean, there are lots of reasons why people mm-hmm. could have been purchasing that book, mm-hmm. but that's one thing that Amazon could have done to kind of get closer to doing the right thing. Yeah. I would say. 
Well, that's entirely consistent of what we've talked about throughout this interview, which is education, mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. it's for business leaders, right. uh, communicators, uh, young people, particularly students, mm-hmm. uh, educating yourself about this issue is a must. And the first step before you get into a position where you're making decisions mm-hmm. like Amazon had to make, and I, I really love that idea of of linking to something that provided a little bit more depth and broaden the understanding of mm-hmm. uh, the bigger issue. I was just going to say, I think I think this is very similar to how people are trying to start, uh, well, how white people are trying to start thinking about racism, which is that, okay, there's already been a lot of good work done on racism, right? All we have to do is take the responsibility to access that stuff and educate ourselves, right? I would say the same thing about anti-Semitism. There's been mm-hmm. so much good research. There's so much good information out there. All you have to do is access it if you really you know, are interested. So it's not as though you have to reinvent the wheel if you want to make a difference. You just have to dedicate some time to it. And, and Ingrid, last question. Uh, is that information, would you say the Wiesel Center is, uh, if people went to that website, they could find the kind of information and research that you're talking about? What would be a good source to refer people to? So um, there are a number of good sources. The uh, If you're interested in things about the Holocaust and anti-Semitism, the um, Holocaust Museum website is a really great source. They have lots of um, curated documents and lots of information that's you know sort of pitched to all levels of, of knowledge. Um, the Wissell Center is a great uh, resource because you could contact, you know, our faculty and, and ask questions, um, and we'd be happy to, to point folks in the right direction, particularly regarding issues around, um, you know, anti-Semitism, educating yourself about Israel, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, so uh, there's also the Jewish Virtual Library. That's another great, that's a, oh, that's a digital great. Um, library that is a great source that I find reliable. I use it in the classroom for most things re- related to Jewish history, culture, belief, etc. Great. Excellent. That's all fantastic. And we'll make sure we uh, list all of that on our website. Thank you. Ingrid, great. thank you. Thank you so much for being on The Crux. Fascinating discussion. It's my pleasure. And thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Crux. And make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.